0: tonight is an amazing woman we all need to meet. We're so grateful to have Emily Staker. Emily, welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Props.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here.
0: So Emily, we met on social media, on Twitter, and I have been following you on Twitter. And you've got a very interesting background with your undergrad at uh, Gonzaga University in political science philosophy, and political science and government, as well as from the University of Denver, the Strum College of Law, and as well, you're a published author of research regarding the role of the agent of the 2021 NFL CBA. You've worked at the NFL agency, public relations specialist for NFL players, sports broadcasting, and host of the galvanized podcast, with Gabrielle De Paula, where you inspire women in the sports industry through their missions and values by galvanizing and bringing people together. It does sound as though, Emily, that you've got representation. Um, would it be right to say that you've moved into a PR profession and how challenging or rewarding has that been for you over your career?
1: Yeah, you know, PR has always been something that's Come naturally to me. Um, Communications is just something that I've always done well in. And when I started in the agency space, it was really a role that I created for myself to help the players with a lot of their communications, with personal statements, and just with, you know, kind of how they manage their perception, their public perception and I really enjoyed it. So to me, it is a part of kind of everything that I do. It's an important part of being an attorney in a lot of ways, uh, kind of managing perception. And it's really important as an agent also to be cognizant of those things. So, um, you know, I've created definitely an umbrella of services, but they're all very much interconnected.
0: So you also have been very vocal on social media, which is also something that um, it's wonderful to get your perspective and your take on things in a social platform, and it, it's been very good at providing you a voice and also growing your brand. But I think it's bigger than that in terms of the way that you use social media to use your voice. You know, how do you think that that role social media has to play, just in in general, in building your your overall sport brand?
1: You know, it's sort of evolved with my voice, I would say, as I became more educated and more immersed in the industry, I think I had a lot more to say, frankly. And it's been great. I am at a point, especially after the year that we had, that I don't really want people to question where I stand on things. You know, I, I want people to have a pretty good understanding uh, of where I stand, especially on the things that matter. And, you know, allyship is something that's really important to me uh, as an agent. You know, I have black women that I represent. And so it's important in my opinion that they know I am using my voice and my platform to support them also. It's certainly, I, I think I've probably become more vocal in the last year for sure. But if I'm saying it, I, I genuinely believe it. Like at that point, if it's on social media, it, it's something that I wholeheartedly believe in
0: so you've taken to social media during this whole ncaa obnoxious behavior and (laughs) it's quite refreshing to see that actually and i think that i shared the same sentiment to say that there's obviously it brought out a lot of feeling but also just what is going on and it reminded us how much more work that we need to do in this space in terms of diversity and inclusion in sport, specifically gender in sport for, for women. So I know this is an advocacy for you as well, and perhaps maybe just talk about why the NCAA caused such outcry and such outrage and why that is such a huge impact in everything that you are doing today
1: yeah you know i i've done a lot of work in the women's sports area um i've worked with the pwhpa for you know since their inception really that was really my first primer into basically the structure of women's sports and why there's so many fallacies that are used in discussing it as far as you know the big thing is it doesn't generate revenue which In the NCAA, that's its own issue, right? Because they're not supposed to prioritize revenue, but when it comes to women's sports, you know, they really have never been given the opportunity to generate revenue because they've never been invested in. And so I think with the NCAA, in the law, we use the term form over substance a lot. And I think what they did, especially with the women's tournament, is a lot of form rather than substance in terms of, checking boxes, you know, did we provide the women with weight? Sure. Um, but substantively, is it the same? Or is it even equitable to what the men are getting? Same thing with food, same thing with swag, you know, just overall treatment, even if you look at the different courts, you know, they're playing on very much a different court. And so, For me, it's frustrating to know that they aren't getting that investment. And I also read, I think Billie Jean King actually tweeted it the other day, that the winner of the men's tournament, that team gets $2 million. And for the women, they get nothing. And that's really interesting to me because it's almost impossible then at that point to truly grow your program, like the publicity of winning, And the reputation that you can get from being a really good basketball program, it's great, but it only goes so far. And so I think for me, it's incredibly frustrating to see, you know, Draymond Green got on in mansplained revenue and women's sports to everyone the other day, which was entertaining. But it's frustrating to get told like, no, the problem is you're not generating revenue. When you apply it in a business context and think, okay, what business? anywhere can just generate revenue without any investment right when you're creating a business when you're doing a startup investments one of the first conversations that you're having and so they haven't been given that foundation really and that's why their growth has been really stagnant you know you can only go so far when you don't have that flow of money to really genuinely grow
0: So we're seeing this with many sports, not just in the NCAA women's basketball. I'm going to argue that it's all throughout the NCAA. You were seeing it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand in women's hockey. Billie Jean King uses the word crumbs. That's like, we don't want the crumbs. And I think that this is a very good statement because it's more than just the crumbs. And I think that there's so many different people that are involved. Let's, let's just think about the athletes because the athletes also have a certain amount of time to play, you only have a certain amount of time to play in college, you only have a certain amount of time to play when you're whether you're a male or female athlete in professional sports. And so at some point, to be able to take a stand, I, I feel like the athletes continue to be asked to, you know, take the crumbs and take the stand right now. And that means that might mean you need to sit out, it might mean that you need to boycott. You know, Serena Williams did it with tennis and she was in a very positive position, a very um, influential position to be able to do that. Not every athlete in female sports are able to do that. The second point is that in women's sports in particular, I agree, it's this cycle. If we don't have the broadcast, nobody's gonna find us. If we don't have the funding, then we can't invest in marketing the broadcast. How do we continue to grow the game if the dollars aren't invested in that area? And so I don't believe also it's that continued economic constraint that continues to be the excuse. And it's not just the economic constraint. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it goes much deeper. There's deep societal valuation of the accomplishments of men and women going on here and also like sports just for so long have been male prevalent, and the way that we engage with them, you know, it's been so heavily focused on uh, the men's side of things and that that is a much deeper reflection of societal values it's just the funding and the money you know that reflects that value
0: let's talk about your career now because you've represented both athletes and as well members of the sports media community what are uh, some of the similarities and the noticeable similarities and differences of representing both an athlete and a media influencer that you can share with us
1: you know in in this time and age i would say there's a lot more similarities with the importance of branding and you know the use of social media and being able to create revenue outside of the scope of your job description whether that's on a field or behind a camera the differences you know i would say one players at least in the nfl players have a lot more leverage for the most part especially you know once they're in the league they have a lot more leverage and you know they have a cba so they have rules set in place for how they're going to be treated whereas the media isn't necessarily as regulated and i definitely made it a point to represent women who are younger and starting out in the industry because that's really where I saw the biggest need for quality representation. That's where I saw, you know, the the worst agents really taking advantage of young women and also just women signing terrible contracts. So I do think that there's a big disparity in treatment and leverage in that way. And you know, at the end of the day, a lot of how I negotiate for their value is similar. And my experience working with athletes, you know, that's that heavy analysis when it comes to their value, like you're really just digging into their stats and comparing where they stack up at their position to the other free agents and what the market can bear for their salary. And so that really, to me, created a process of how I go about media contracts as well. There's not as many staff available, but I definitely still do a very similar approach, especially when it comes to, you know, the size of market, their ratings, their social media following and engagement and try and quantify that in their salary. So the saying, don't sign the first contract that you get,
0: you've probably seen that hundreds of times where you see athletes or media influencers get a contract get very excited about it. And your probably your advice is don't sign the first agreement that you get. Would you say that that's something that you hear yourself saying? And why is that important for your clients?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's hugely important. You know, I represent um, a very big influencer. She's got over a million followers on TikTok now and, and she's young. She just turned 21. And when I started working with her right after her first video, like really went viral, like it was on Upworthy. She got invited to be on Ellen. Like it really blew up. And it's in those moments that it's so important to just pause and really take a moment to understand what you can do with that potential and be able to recognize who's gonna try and come in and exploit what you've created on your own. And so her and I both got really lucky in that we connected through a referral, actually someone through Galvanize referred her to me who went to college with her kind of right after she blew up. And so we were able to get on a call almost right away and I was able to immediately kind of have those conversations with her because she was already getting people who wanted to do merch collabs, who wanted to buy certain rights. You know, she has certain phrases that are now very much part of her brand and her identity. And I definitely saw pretty early a lot of brands wanted to buy in with these really inequitable agreements. And so I'm super thankful that I was able to get in when I did, because I think that happens a lot, not just with influencers, but you know, with athletes too, sometimes they just see the dollar sign. And when you're not used to that, when you come from a background that you haven't had access to that kind of financial uh, assistance ever, there's a level of comfort that you want to attain as soon as possible. And so for me, the role, not just as a agent but also as an attorney is to make sure one that they're really understanding what's in that contract what they're signing away and to kind of walking them through like how do we maximize your value
0: Well, we definitely know who to go to when we start to talk about what we're going to do with sport talks, sport profs, as this continues to grow and our brand gets bigger. And I'm hoping there will be companies that look to exploit us so that we can come to you to have these conversations. But with that said, I want to hand it over to Chelsea, because she's going to talk about how COVID has influenced a new landscape for sport journalism and broadcast. Chelsea?
2: Uh, Emily, I'm very curious as to know what the long-term effects of COVID has had on the sports industry and what changes have you seen and then what changes do you think are here to stay long term?
1: Yeah well as far as my sports media clients go you know live coverage obviously was kind of off the table for an entire year and so I saw a lot of those roles either getting eliminated and restructured, or, you know, they were being asked to adapt kind of on the fly into a more digital role. And so for me, I was okay with that because I have the background where I can help my clients, you know, become more savvy with social media. But I really do think now that a lot of these networks are realizing the value of digital content that's going to be huge. And so a lot of those roles that maybe work live are also going to require some digital content creation because that is so valuable to them now and being able to push out that content on so many different platforms, you know, that generates so much value for them. And so, uh, for them, I think that is one thing that will stay after because it's more cost effective. If you can have somebody who can be on camera and also create content for your different platforms. On the field, it's hard to say, you know, very frankly, there's going to be physical effects from COVID. Uh, the NFL released they did a study that they found uh, very little allegedly, very little uh, permanent heart damage, lung damage from those players who did test positive for COVID. But uh, it's not just football, obviously. It's in every single sport that continued in the last year. And so that's concerning to me. Like the NFL already really has struggled to handle the concussion settlement ethically. And so that's something that I, it definitely concerns me how that's going to um, be handled in the future because the NFL moved so fast with their response and, and they kind of adapted as they went, as they learned more, but they never hit the pause button. You know, they were always just continuing to go. And so the problem with that is, they continued to put players in compromising situations before they knew that there was the potential for that severe heart and lung damage and so that's to me that's something that i'm definitely concerned about and i'm very concerned for the college players who got it and were exposed to that kind of damage because they have so much less leverage and that kind of damage can very directly affect their chances of getting to a league or, you know, at minimum, it affects their health for the rest of their life.
2: Exactly. And you touched upon the leverage aspect of it, too, when it comes to college athletes. And I'm very curious as to how the pandemic Um, How you feel like it has worked to potentially open new avenues for sport journalism broadcast and social media and then even athletes themselves so like with the tension between um, Athletes wanting to use their social media platforms to grow their brand and generate uh, value and fans who believe that they should solely be focused on sport What are your thoughts on that and and the discrepancy between the two?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely am biased because I've seen the money that is in sponsored content. I mean, my my TikTok client makes thousands of dollars per TikTok. And so, you know, after negotiating those contracts, like, of course, I want my other clients to have access to that also. And so I think that there's a way to do that responsibly and in a way that's super cognizant about the type of brand that they want to build and, and really genuinely authentically showcasing who they are as a person the problem with a lot of fans is we're realizing that they only uh, enjoy certain players for who they are on the field and social media is so powerful because it showcases who that player is off the field also you know they can talk about their families their interests you know just who they are as a person what they're feeling and again in a year like last year it's a great platform to be an advocate or to share your experiences and so I think that that is a tension that is dying. Um, I think that's a very outdated way of thinking of just sort of typecasting athletes as athletes and that distinction between sports and social justice, like that's gone. Like that distinction, we're never going to get that back. Some people will always want it, but it's done because that you can't talk about, you know, some of these predominantly black leagues without having these conversations about social justice and so i think in that way social media has been an incredible way for them to showcase that they are so much more like the NFLPA uses more than an athlete and social media is a great way for them to showcase who they are as being more than an athlete you know some of them are doing internships with nasa with adidas with different companies who bring players in to have a kind of experience for the first time ever and I think it's great for them to be able to showcase their interests off the field. I think it's actually very important for fans to see that they are so much more. In my opinion, it makes them a lot more likable. You know, when we just see a player for his numbers, there's nothing really compelling you to follow them, you know, or to like them. Like, how are you going to relate to Khalil Mack if you just look at his stock count, right? I can't but when he talks about his family or you know when he talks about being traded and what it was like to be on a team that really valued him like those are human aspects of his experience that we can all relate to. And so I think social media is incredibly powerful because not only can you generate so much revenue right now and grow your following, but you can also, you know, show people who you really are as a person.
2: And we talk about that a lot within Laurel's class, especially when it comes to the different types of fans. And of course, it's taken me back to her lessons from however many years ago that I took them, and mm-hmm. how we're not just focusing on the game-centric fan anymore. There is the connection fans, and, and they want to know the personality of the athlete. And speaking of diversity, I saw a tweet earlier today, and you had also retweeted it, uh, for Kendall Baker, saying that if athletes could monetize their NIL, their name, image, and likeness, rights, the top women's players in this elite eight would have earned greater power than the men. So based on all of their following, this is the type of money that they could be generating. Speaking on the business side of things, could this be an avenue that female athletes um, have potentially a leg up on over the male athletes, given the assumed openness to innovation on monetizing practices such as uh, influencer marketing?
1: Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about women who are athletes is that converse to nfl players who have to advertise that they're more than an athlete women have almost never had that luxury to just be an athlete for the most part i think the ncaa says that only two percent of their athletes go to a league after graduation but we don't know how that two percent breaks down as men to women And so many of the women that I know who played sports in college, like they pretty much knew that was it, like they were done. And the PWHPA, you know, they did the dream gap tour, they continue to do it. And the dream gap, that's something that I think about all the time. When you have little girls who really cannot fathom a certain level that men are going to accomplish. And so by knowing that they aren't going to be able to have those channels to just be an athlete, they sort of have to be innovative in the other ways in which they uh, grow as a person and as they generate value. And so, yeah, I think it, it makes sense that with this generation, the women are much stronger on social media because they're thinking about their long game much earlier, you know, because they don't have these easy steps to success like a lot of men do. And that applies to even the best of the best. And, um, you know, there's some women in the PWHPA who are architects, who are doctors, who are, you know, moms of multiple children, nurses, nutritionists, like they are already so much more than an athlete, but it's because they've never been allowed to just be that. And so it actually doesn't surprise me at all for that reason, Um, I think that they just had to be a lot more creative in terms of growing their following and generating value for themselves
2: exactly i completely agree with that and and we also see just like you said that female athletes can't necessarily fall back on the million dollar contracts and they don't get to just have their sole focus on their sport they have to think about other ways of monetizing and i would love to see more openness within the ncaa for all athletes to be able to monetize their likeness and their name and their image because uh they're already not making a lot to begin with and i i mean i've read many articles of how the assumption that oh they get scholarships they get this they get that it's a start and it's a bit but it's not a lot and there's also many stipulations that come with those contracts as well so moving forward into types of athletes now we're seeing an emergence of esports athletes so have you i'm curious Mm -hmm. have you ever represented an esports athlete or have colleagues that have represented um, anyone within the esports realm and how does your job look a little bit differently in terms of what you do for athletes in other professional leagues versus esports entertainment
1: You know, I I haven't ventured into it personally, but it's interesting because my first year of law school, I joined the Sports Lawyers Association and they do a conference every year. And that year I went to the conference and the big, big, big topic was eSports. And just hearing how much money was being invested into it was uh, pretty mind-blowing. And thinking back, I wish that I had focused more into it, knowing that, but it's something that I don't understand as well as I would like, but I know that it will continue to grow just given the trajectory that it's on. But yeah, I mean, it's a pretty heavy hitting industry now. And I think that there are, um, a lot of ways in which it could be analogous to, those collectively bargained leagues, but they don't quite have those structures yet. And so being an agent in the esports realm is a lot different. It's kind of the Wild West still, um, because you don't necessarily have those rules in place for, you know, what commission an agent can make, or, uh, you know, what are the minimum salaries that players can get? So, or, you know, how much can you spend on an esports team? Like, they haven't really regulated those in a way that A lot of the leagues, you know, have to to maintain competition. And so it is a really interesting world to me. And I know that there's so much money in it. And um, I definitely need to look into it more because I do know it's going to grow.
2: Thank you so much. And I'm going to throw back to Laurel now because she's going to dive deep into the next generation of women in sports.
0: I would like to build off of this conversation that Chelsea, you and Emily are having. I'd like to take a different approach to the idea of uh, Kendall Baker and the, the social media side of the business, if I could. The question I have is, let's look at this as an opportunity side where people like yourself, Emily, are guiding your clients and guiding athletes to also control their content to ultimately be able to think about how they're able to use their content in media, use their content to leverage as a group. So I often think about this, I I compare it to let's say how well the Kardashian family is doing. And the reason I say that is because they are very astute at controlling their content, controlling the communication Mm -hmm. and building their own businesses off of their own brand. So I think about this in the context of women's soccer, women's basketball, I think about this actually with all athletes, but let's just for we're we're talking next generation of women in sports, and how let's say our media organizations are using these female athletes to be able to market the Olympics, market the NCAA March Madness, market the big tournaments. And the women are coming out so incredibly strong in those teams and the viewership is so incredible. So how do the female athletes use those platforms when they're at the height of viewership to then package in controlling their own content so it's not just the broadcaster that wins at the end of the day?
1: That's a lot of where my PR comes in, right? Is controlling the narrative. And that definitely applies to every and all social media platforms is there is an element of gatekeeping my approach is getting to know that person and how they are in their personal lives in terms of privacy you know if they're an open book in their personal life i say okay great let's be authentic to that and you know share more on your social media but if they're private like Let's really respect that and let's diligently plan and know what you are and are not willing to share on social media. And I find it so important and so valuable to take the time to have a conversation, you know, who do you want to be because your image is so important and what people are seeing is really, you know, it's how they perceive you. And I love that you talk about how it gives them the opportunity to sort of counter any sort of narratives in the media or also bolster them. And I think that it's really important to have the opportunity to showcase who they really are. And, you know, for me, that focus, uh, the Kardashian reference is a great one because they do a lot of gatekeeping and you can see like their focus is revenue generating (laughs) and they do a great job. And they've done it in a way that's very authentic to who they are, but they do it in a way that also respects sort of those personal boundaries, like they really only share as much as as they're willing to. And so, um, you know, I think it really just depends on the person and who they are in real life as far as what they're willing to share with others. So I'd like to
0: bring in Prof. Joe on this conversation and talk more about the Galvanize organization. Joe?
3: Thanks, Laurel. Hi, Emily. Yeah. I want to find out a little bit more about this, the Galvanize organization.
0: What's its mission and how did you
3: get to be involved with it?
1: Yeah. Well, Galvanize began very um, narrowly as a bootcamp for women who wanted to either enter sports coverage or better refine their skills in sports coverage. And Laura Oakman, the founder, she is, you know, one of the most veteran sideline reporters in the NFL. She currently covers the NFL for Fox, but she also calls games for Westwood One. She called the Super Bowl this year and last for Westwood One. And when she started to see women who were younger and younger, entering the industry without a lot of preparation, instead of, you know, knocking them down, she wanted to create something that could help them. And so for her galvanize was the answer in terms of creating these partnerships with NFL teams and inviting these younger women who are entering the industry, maybe not with that foundational set of skills and allowing them to build that in a really safe environment. And it's a really amazing process because now we work with NFL teams right after they draft their rookie class and they sign all their new undrafted rookies. And so usually it's in May or June. So they have about 20 of these rookies. And so about 25 women will go to the facility and you're paired with a rookie and you get to help tell their story and what i love about it more than anything is some of these guys especially some of the undrafted guys they might have come from a smaller school lower division school they might have never had the opportunity to tell their story and so you might be the first person who is giving them the opportunity to really tell their story and if they're making it to the nfl even if they get cut in the next week they've still beaten so many odds. And so they pretty much all have pretty incredible stories. And to know that you might be the first one to tell it, it's a huge honor. And it's something that stays with you. And, you know, it's also incredibly important to continue to foster that trust between media and players, and particularly between media that are women and players in these male leagues. And so I know So many women in Galvanize who still talk to their rookies this day, whether they're stars or whether they're out of the league, like working in a different area, that relationship, that trust, that's real. You know, that intimacy is real because they're trusting you with a story that they might have never told someone before and so galvanize started as that and now it's it's opened up into so many different things we do mentorship we do sort of educational events we invite certain women in the industry to come speak and i think that the biggest focus is authenticity and vulnerability you know i definitely in my time working with galvanize i've learned the value of being vulnerable Because if you're just walking into, you know, I've seen so many this month because it's Women's History Month and whatnot, but you know, you walk, see a conference and you hear everyone on the panel accomplishments and it's hard to relate. And so I think Galvanize's approach is to kind of cast away the resume or the job description of that person and, and really focus on the person, you know, regardless of their accomplishments, who are they as a person? And that allows, you know, the women that they're mentoring to really relate to them on such a personal level. And so it's evolved into something much bigger. I think it's comprised of about 2000 women now. And it's still growing and we have so much more planned uh, in store for just this year. So I'm very excited, but you know, I got involved simply from having a conversation with Laura. You know, she's such a good journalist in that she makes you feel like your story is the most important. And I just kind of told her my story and we related to one another in a lot of different ways. And she asked me to Help her with a few things, and that sort of snowballed into my role now uh, on the leadership council. And so I'm one of three women, and we are, you know, essentially a, a steering committee for Galvanize of, you know, kind of what direction do we want to go in? What do we want to offer to women? Like, what message do we want to make sure we're communicating on behalf of the thousands of women that we represent? And so it's been great i've learned so much but i honestly am so excited to see how we continue to grow because there's a lot of good stuff in store
3: that's great to know but how can one get involved with the boot camps i mean you say like now it's had exponential growth within within all these ways but now someone's just hearing about it for the first time how would you direct them or guide them into finding maybe the best boot camps that might work for them and um, what would be your best advice to them?
1: Yeah, this year is a little different because we're not sure if we're going to do in person again. Last year we ended up adapting and doing those uh, virtual boot camps just because you know we weren't going in person, and so we were actually able to have more women do boot camps because they were virtual. You know, when you're doing the in person, there is a smaller capacity because of the pairings that we do as rookies, and so. It, it really depends on the course of the next few months. And unfortunately with our partnership with these NFL teams, the window that we can do these in-person camps is so small because it's between, you know, when they sign that last free agent and when they have to start camp. And so that's about six weeks. And sometimes we have four or five teams. So it's back to back to back camp. And so we're still kind of waiting to hear from teams. I think I'm not surprised at all because it's the NFL, but they don't really know what they're going to be doing in May either or June. And so anyone who wants to get involved, I would say, make sure you're following all the galvanized social media, because that's where those updates will come. As soon as we know what we're doing, because we kind of are just following their lead of what's going to be available. And we know now, after having a year of virtual boot camps, we know how to adapt so quickly that there's going to be boot camps. We just don't know what they're going to look like this year.
3: So with the Galvanize organization, you know, what role do you see men having within it? Because one of the biggest things that we're talking about now in terms of for gender equity is that men have to come to the table and allyship is important.
1: Yeah, I think men you know, making those opportunities to bring women into those buildings, you know, and allowing for those conversations is really important. Like I have great relationships with the men throughout the franchises that we work with who run player development, because they're the ones, like they're the gatekeepers to their guys. And they're the ones who are trusting us to come in and talk to their guys. And again, like we have coaches who really rely on our women to get to know who their players really are, you know, and let them know. So not only can they get a better understanding of what their rookie class looks like, but you know, really know if they need to know if a player hat like just lost a parent recently. That's important for a coach to know. And so, really, just making sure that there are opportunities that you can bring us into uh, in such a male prevalent industry is extremely important and. Taking a step back, I think, when opportunities arise and having the self-awareness to say, okay, have I made this inclusive? Have I made this opportunity inclusive? And if not, what can I do to make sure that, you know, the best quality people do have this opportunity?
3: I think Chelsea's got a question to follow up on that with.
2: We had Madison Cuckoo uh, most recently from uh, Hockey Canada on here uh, at the beginning of March and she mentioned and we also talked a little bit earlier in this show about how you help coach women to negotiate their contracts and um, help empower them to know what they're worth and how to go to the table when getting a job so can you tell us a little bit about what those conversations entail and how our female students can work on their negotiation skills uh, when they graduate and start looking for jobs
1: yeah i when i was in law school i poured my heart into pretty much all the negotiating competitions classes like i wanted to know what are the inner workings of a successful negotiation and they were helpful to an extent but you know a lot of those like competitions like they're happening in a vacuum they're not really real life and so they only go so far but um i think the accumulation of those classes, those experiences, plus then my work in the agency space, I have a very practical approach when it comes to negotiation. But unfortunately, there's no classes or broadcasting majors on how to negotiate a media contract. They don't have the tools that I've been provided, you know, somebody who studied law for three years. So I think for me, it's just repackaging the information that I was giving in a really digestible way. And also within the context of, of their world of their industry and, you know, explaining to them what their stats are and how they can increase their value. And even just how to have those more uncomfortable conversations, how to ask somebody what they're getting paid so that you can have a reference for salary when you're asking for a raise or making an initial offer. And then there are sort of those technical things that you can do. I always laugh because people treat negotiation so mysteriously, like there's all these secrets to it, but you know, at the end of the day, it really is, I always call it, it's a conversation with purpose. And if you're thinking about doing anything with tricks or tips, it's not going to go well. And so I think knowing that it's a conversation with purpose and being as prepared as possible with the facts is what I try and, you know, instill in these women. It's a lot easier to negotiate your worth for women, especially who uh, have been conditioned to be devalued. I think when they have the numbers to really support what they're asking for, when they've seen those numbers, that increases their confidence exponentially. It, It no longer feels like a huge ask when you know, this is what the market supports for my position, for my work, for my value.
2: Thank you. That's very interesting, and perhaps Laurel, that's something that uh, you should look into uh, for for future classes. Have Emily come Absolutely.
0: in. <laughs> Absolutely, I was thinking the same thing. I'm sure, Joe, your your wheels are turning here too, as is Chelsea's. <laughs> so Axel mm-hmm. is taking over for Coach Berlin tonight on the Rapid Fire. So tonight, Axel's going to give you the instructions, the rules of the Rapid Fire. All I can say is you try to do your best to do one word answers if you could. Okay, over to you, Axel.
4: Well, that's the only rule, quite frankly, one word answers. So um, <laughs> apart from that, it's just having fun. And uh, Emily, you seem like somebody who's good uh, thinking on their feet. So uh, I'm sure you'll have one uh, any problems.
1: Fingers <laughs> okay,
4: great. So um, the first one is just uh, you know to get us going. Uh, it's a fill in the blanks question. So, when visiting your home state of Idaho, don't forget to bring your
1: jacket.
4: Okay, so just so so get. we should be thinking no Canada, matter like, what Canada, Okay, uh, you you have a you have a puppy, an adorable puppy. Is that is that correct?
1: Yeah, he's almost two now, but he still acts like a puppy.
4: Okay, so so your your two-part question is, what's his name and what's his absolutely
1: favorite thing? His name is Haas because he is 120 pounds. He goes to daycare almost every day, so probably going to daycare and playing with his fellow dog friends.
4: Awesome. Uh, So we're obviously approaching the end of March Madness. What's your women's tournament champion prediction? Your options are Stanford, Louisville, UConn or Baylor?
1: Stanford.
4: And then uh, on the men's side, we know where your loyalties are likely going to lie. Um, so we'll just assume that you have the Zags playing in the finals in April 5th. Who do you think they're going to play? We've got Baylor again on the men's side as a possible option. And you've also got Arkansas, Houston, and Oregon State.
1: I got to ride at the Pac-12 and say Oregon State.
4: Okay, are you in a uh, pool? Is this uh, something you got money riding on?
1: No, I no longer do the brackets because I just am so spoiled being a Gonzaga fan that I only care about them winning.
4: (laughs) No worries. On on March 25th in uh, TSN broadcast, the first ever all-female broadcast of the Denver Nuggets Toronto Raptors game. I don't know if you caught that. Um, We had uh, an amazing stellar cast of Megan McPeak. Uh, Amy Otterbeer, Kayla Gray, Kia Nurse, and Kate Bearnes. If you could have added a a female broadcaster to that list to see them in action, who would that be?
1: Maria Taylor.
4: Great. Your most memorable moment in women in sports of the past 12 months.
1: Oh, wow. That's a lot. I would say how the WNBA handled the summer and uh, how they addressed a lot of social justice issues was so impactful. I mean, it it resounded throughout so many other leagues, but to me, that was probably the most significant.
4: The galvanized podcast, Throwing Shades, recently launched into its second season. Uh, What topic are you most looking forward to tackling on that show?
1: So we just wrapped up an interview with a former division one women's basketball player about just the recent events and hearing her perspective was incredible. So I'm really excited to share that one.
4: What's the hardest part about being an agent?
1: Um, Work-life balance.
4: (laughs) And the most rewarding?
1: You get to experience the highs and the lows. It's really the relationships that are the best part.
4: So who is the person <laughs> we should be following right now on social media given your knowledge of the digital marketing space? Who, who should we be following?
1: Oh man, I gotta give a shout out to a fellow Idaho native, Megan Reyes. She just joined uh, Blue Wire Podcast Network as their social media person, but she is one of the most savvy social media people in the game right now.
4: Great, you did you did great. That that was 10 questions. Uh, usually we don't get past five, so you were amazing. Thanks, Emily.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: So the Galvanize podcast, Throwing Shades, you said that you just did an interview with the D1 NCAA basketball athlete. That's so exciting. We definitely are gonna follow that. This actually goes into a up-and-coming virtual conference that we are hosting at Ryerson University. It's called The Accountability Revolution in Sport Media. And we're bringing together people from all over, globally, all over to talk about how we can sort of have high-level conversations about exposure, programming in the media's role, mm-hmm portrayal stereotypes representation how we can better market to fans the females game commercialization looking at under representation in funding and so with that i'm going to read a quote and so this is just our last question in rapid fire and i'd like you to just if if you could in a word or a sentence, what does this mean to you in the context of your Throwing Shades podcast, as well as knowing that we're throwing shade, (laughs) or at least we're trying to identify what that shade is, how we can improve it and make it brighter, the accountability revolution in sport media. Here's the quote. It's by a scholar called George B. Cunningham from an article, creating and sustaining gender diversity in sport organization. The quote is as follows seeking to eradicate gender diversity inequality in sport media organizations with piecemeal one-time efforts is akin to trying to move the leg of a table without moving the entire table itself. It simply cannot happen. What is your perspective in one word on that quote?
1: Facts, definitely facts. I mean, I can tell you, Most of the women I know in this industry cannot wait for Women's History Month to be over. So, they're, all the performative stuff goes away because the real support is year long. So, that's a great quote.
0: Great. Thank you. Emily Staker, thank you so much for being on Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'm Prof Walls, joined by Prof Joe, as well as our executive producer tonight, Chelsea Vern. And behind the scenes, so that you don't see who's is also joining us on producing this show is Kaylin Noonan and of course our expert in entertainment and esports, Axel Lealmanis. Thank you so much, Emily. Have a good evening and thanks for joining thank Sport you.
1: Yes, thank all of you so much. Good
0: night. Mm-hmm.